Checking in, State Representative Tacky Chan of Quincy is joining us for our weekly Tacky Talks. Hey, Tacky, what's going on? Hey, Joe, good to see you. Uh, it's been busy in world affairs and Congress still doesn't function. And uh, at least uh, Massachusetts still hums along, uh, despite what people have uh, think about this and that. The news media's desire to make it sound like we're not doing anything. But, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're no, relative to the rest of the planet. We're doing pretty good as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, take take QATV out of the news media. <laughs> we certainly know you're doing something. Yeah, and it's a sunny. It's yeah, we finally got a sunny day uh, for for a little while longer. Yeah, did you have a good three day weekend? Kind of yes, kind of no. Uh, you know, had a. It wasn't. What did I do Friday? I'm losing track of time. Oh, Friday was Korea Day. So uh, as I, you all know, I got my COVID flu shots. Some of you may know this, but you know I did get my vaccination. It did wear me down, but I did check myself this state. I was for Korea Day, which uh, October is uh, the month where uh, Korea was founded. I actually, tracked their calendar in the back uh, to their very uh, day of foundation of the country. And um, you know we celebrated Korea Day, the foundation of Korean, Korean culture, the state house. You know went in and said some words about uh, the importance of not being forgotten and. You know, when we talk about, you know, the people's house, which is the state house, not all people have been to the state house, which I strongly encourage in the visits, such incredible historical site. Um, but also that, you know, people don't know it's that welcoming. And, uh, and you know, we still have to work it uh, for everyone, not just for some of us. And uh, it's a very, I'm making a very broad statement, but it's actually quite true. You know, people should... Oh, definitely come to the state house and it's open to all despite the metal detectors and the security we have um and you know to you know appreciate you know, one of the oldest running democracies democratic republics you know in the world is actually out of massachusetts so that was that and you know it's some of my condolences to Emma Mahoney and her family you know mary mulligan passed away you know, stopped by that week on the way home on friday took some phone calls in the car but uh because that's what you do in cars these days you catch up on on business calls. And then um, Saturday, my friend Conan Suhu, who's now leading the Asian Realtors, Asian Real Estate uh, Area, Asian Real Estate uh, Association, um, Massachusetts chapter, had an event at the Old Boston Globe on uh, financial education and um, first-time home buying. We had to stop in there, did my grocery shopping and whatnot afterwards. Uh, it rained pretty heavily, as you all know, so I was out there trying to get my errands done. And then um, Sunday was quiet, and Monday was Taiwan Day. Uh, I was at the Park Plaza Hotel on on uh, Monday night, Boston Park Plaza, uh, which is ten ten day in Taiwan. It's ten ten. It's the international timeline. So the uh, October tenth is the day when uh, Sun Yat Sen and uh, you know the forces of uh, movement for democratic China, you know, un unseated the empire, the, the end of the dynasties. Uh, and people like, you know, Mao Zedong and uh, Sun Yat-sen and uh, Chiang Kai-shek and many, many other uh, local uh, leaders and warlords, let's call them mm -hmm. what it is, um, you know, consolidated to take down the empire. So October 10 is the day that happened uh, and the declaration of the Republic of China and the attempt to uh, create its first republic um, under Sun Yat-sen. So uh, that was... Um, uh, Monday night with colleagues and uh, with the new director general from Taiwan, and uh, your chance to see some folks. But it was a little bit thin. It was a little bit thin attendance, largely because it's a long weekend. Right. So 
It's New England legislators from the six states, at least have at least one representative. Um, and of course, a lot of people from the Chinatown leadership and um, a lot of veterans um, will, you know, will show up as well as some of the you know, older generation of veterans that actually you know, fought in the uh, communist, uh, fought against the communists uh, back in the 50s as they continue to pass on because of just age. Um, and of course, we just talked a little bit earlier before we started. You know, one another person of a past generation is Frank Chin from Chinatown, the last of the last gen, last of that generation of leaders uh, in Chinatown at age ninety one. His brother Billy passed away, I believe, uh, two years ago. So, you know, again, uh, time moves on and uh, change is coming, uh, even in Chinatown leadership structure. Mm -hmm. So, is ten, is ten ten considered Independence Day for Taiwan or no? No. It's considered independence day for all of China, both oh, the okay. Chinese uh, Communist Party as well as the Taiwan government, actually, and actually all Chinese, uh, for the purposes of uh, ending the uh, empire. Uh, that's the day it had and the declaration of the republic. Of course, Taiwan is referred to as the Republic of China uh, under Chiang Kai-shek. And then we have the People's Republic of China, which is Mao Zedong, and we had that prolonged civil war after... Um, death of Sun Yat-sen, who was holding it all together, um, mm. the, again, power vacuum. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chiang Kai-shek was called nationalists, and then the uh, Communist Party, so the Communist Party of Mao Zedong. Mm. So, uh, as you all know your history, um, you know, the Communist uh, was able to win that war essentially by pushing the uh, Nationalist Party into what we now know as Taiwan. And that's, that's what we treated to. Um, and, you know, many folks that supported them, especially Southeast China, you know, all had to flee into places elsewhere, such as Singapore, um, Macau, Hong Kong, Australia, um, basically anywhere else they could uh, find a, a place to escape to with, with nothing with other they could carry. Although, uh, all the fact, if you go visit Taiwan, um, you will actually find one of the largest archives of Chinese artifacts, one of the things that Chiang Kai-shek did was took everything that was bolted down in Beijing uh, on the way out the door of artifacts. Mm -hmm. And uh, interestingly enough, there's actually probably more antiquities in Taiwan than actually in China itself, given mm -hmm. the oil stuff that he ran off with. And remember, this is like 1952. Um, it's not easy to transport all that stuff in 1952 in a war zone. Right. Hmm. Interesting. But Taiwan now is independent, right? Taiwan's not a country. It's never been a conventional country. Yeah. Oh. yeah, I mean, let me rephrase that. Countries aren't actually defined how people think it is because there's no real method of defining a country. You know, you could go into some barren island and declare as Joe Catalano land, you know, citizen one, right? Yeah. But it's it's really about where you fit in the global world and there's no like clean definition. So like if you look up what's a country like this Transnistia, which is a little gap in Moldova to Ukraine, which the Russians controlled, declared themselves a country, but who actually recognized, right? The Vatican is considered a country in a weird place, which has literally no resources. Right. Uh, the tiniest country in the planet, the Vatican, right? So, but, you know, do they get, you know, you know, free trade status, right? Are they part of the EU treaty seats, right? Do they get to declare war, right? I mean, no. This, yeah. This is complex. It's not as simple as what thinks what a country is. So people use the UN yeah. the definition of a country, right? They say, oh, if you're a UN member, you're a country. Is it? Because, you know, until uh, Nixon and Kissinger normalized relations with China, 
-hmm. China was Taiwan for the purposes of, of uh, the, how do you put this, the, the agreement between the United States and the Soviets to try to maintain some balance. You know, all these agreements were made and compromised, try to prevent World War III, including right. the opposition. And Security Council composition was part of that, part of those discussions. And, uh, you know, Taiwan was recognized as China, the Republic of China. Uh, and uh, the, But the big part of China, which is where all the people and military <laughs> and the largest landmass wasn't recognized as China until Nixon Kissinger cut deal to allow the China, uh, People's Republic of China into the UN and put them on a security counter and booted Taiwan. I see. Uh, Taiwan is a top 20 GDP economy. You know, it's a top 10 trading partner in the U.S. It, it, you know, and I think it's a top, I think it's number eight, maybe eight or nine, I think. It's been a while since I look at numbers. But I mean, they're also a top 15. I know that much. Trading partner, Massachusetts, they have, their, uh, they have a republic that's been there since the end of dictator rule. They actually had you know, military dictator rule to the mid 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they formed a, a proper republic. Um, they are a trading partner globally. They have their own passport visa systems. Mm -hmm. So in all ways, they function like a country, but it's not recognized by a country by the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And other countries don't recognize them, so they don't get things like diplomatic immunity. Okay, but they, they have their own government, though, right, separate from China? Yeah, they're a functional government. So, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a quirky issue. So, you know, as you all hear in the news, it's kind of like, you know, one China policy is recognized but not is recognized but not accepted is okay. vagueness okay. of language right yeah so they put together these laws and agreements between you know not just in congress regarding trade agreements but also with with china you know the the diplomacy of it all is that the balancing act with this stuff and it's um you know it's we all recognize that you know when china policy but we don't uh acknowledge that uh, taiwan uh, is not its own little thing in, in mm -hmm. China. Refer to Taiwan as a rogue state, and in China, they consider Taiwan being part of China, uh, even though they really don't have control over it. And they actually have a trade agreement between the two, and they have their own uh, travel passports between the two until oh. relations really got sour the last five or so years. This has been a long sour. This is not just like recent. Right. And you know, of course, the Chinese uh, government um, has a much more marginalized military. This isn't the military of 50 years ago where a, a land invasion of Taiwan would have been catastrophic because they literally didn't have any equipment that would be equivalent to what you see today. Right, um, right. But also, it's still an island. I mean, it only has like maybe two and a half months of decent weather for mm -hmm. uh, naval, you know, like small naval uh, transcursions of large quantities. But you know, now you have air power like they've never seen before. And uh, but it's also the most important strategic location for trade. Eighty percent of all trade between Taiwan, Korea, you know, and you know, going up and down that area, you know, to Southeast Asia, to Australia, to India, you know, comes through Taiwan Strait. Yeah. You control the Taiwan Strait waters and the international law because there is a maritime law regarding you know how much water people can have around them is the economic development zone they can control. You know, the Chinese could control. You know, Chinese government could control the entire. Um, access point for you know all that trade that moves through and you know we talk about one of the economies the third biggest economy in the planet is still the Japanese I think the Koreans are the sixth biggest okay. so, you know Chinese could literally strangle um, trade or force uh, different tariffs or uh, trade agreements with the Koreans and the Japanese yeah. uh, to their favor in exchange for, for access to waterways Taiwan's best interest allow everybody through 
because it keeps your friends, right? You know, yes. don't, don't make it difficult. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's also, it's been really tense around the world and Taiwan's no separation. And the Chinese government's proving to Taiwan they can get to the other side of the island. If you look in the map, you know, obviously the protected side is the side that faces mainland China. Right. But, you know, they've been flying um, planes and moving ships to the far side and the Pacific side of the uh, island uh, to show that they can come from the back. But, you know, you guys all seen you know, Ukraine, uh, you know, wars, land war that's uh, you know, now really gone into year, deep into year two. And uh, it ain't easy uh, fighting a war. And, um, and now we have one in Israel. And uh, we are uh, aware that Israel is one of the most uh, prepared militaries in the planet. So when they're ready to go, you call, call 350,000 reservists where, you know, have uh, national pride. And now you have a terror attack in a station where, you know, much like you saw in the U.S., everyone's signing up, you know, or going back to Israel somehow, um, you know, to defend their nation. So um, the geopolitics a little bit in Asia. We have the Japanese-Korean factor. You have the Filipino factor. You've seen the news. The Filipinos keep provoking Chinese ships that uh, that the uh, Philippines consider to be inside their own territorial waters. Um, and countries like Vietnam and others are trying to, you know, change relationship with the United States. Because you know they, they they want better not just trade relations but also greater um, security in their also the South China Sea in their territorial waters too, which the United States will recognize and have recognized. Yeah. And they patrol for pirates. I mean, you know, people forget the U.S. Navy isn't just floating around out there, uh, you know, carrying planes and you know equipment. They actually do police international waters against pirates, rescue missions, uh, safety of trade, uh, response to emergencies. Um, of all types. So, you know, the U.S. Navy is still the most powerful Navy in the planet in blue water, deep water. But China doesn't need to go deep water. They're not a deep water country. Right. Very few countries are deep water countries. Yeah. Yeah. Now you mentioned uh, Israel. I think a lot of folks are surprised. That it seems that Israel got caught by surprise, caught off guard. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we're getting a lot of different news reports and, you know, Israeli intelligence, you know, is some of the best on the planet. So yeah, everyone was very surprised that this happened. Um, I'm sure Israeli intelligence dismantling every piece of rocket and whatever stuff that came over day one and trying to find the origins of where it all came from. And you know, whether we find out all the details, that's not up to us, right? You know, uh, but you know, supposedly, you know, five thousand odd rockets, you know, came through in one day beneath the Patriot defense system. And uh, defense system is very good, but it's still 5,000 targets. And you know, in my mind, they had to get somehow low enough uh, for the Patriot system not to pick up. And uh, right. they had specific targets. They did a, a mobilization by land, tunnels, uh, land, overland, underland, so to speak, and, and water uh, to uh, attack specific targets and then take hostages. And this, is, you know, this reminds a lot of us who's been around in the 70s into the 80s. Uh, regarding um, hostage taking, especially mm -hmm. in the 20s. Um, and, you know, I'm still uh, old enough to remember, you know, the Lebanese war. I mean, that thing was like crazy. Uh, where you basically had you know, Hezbollah, you know, out of Lebanon, you know, which is a legit terrorist slash political group that really does run a country. Well, yep. it's making force in a country, which is uh, Lebanon. Um, and, you know, the Israeli just kind of started like, you know, taking it to task uh, to countries that uh, support uh, terrorist acts against Israel. So, 
And this is brutal. I mean, we've been talking about war crimes in uh, Ukraine, about Russians you know, kidnapping children, um, you know, killing women children. There's just full massacres of Beirut. So, you know, Beirut um, the town they basically Russian slaughtered. I mean, now we're getting, you know, uh, reports uh, here and there, depending on the news media, things like, you know, you know, Hamas throwing hand grenades into bomb shelters, for example, you know, just blowing up civilians inside bomb shelters, hand right. grenades, you know, kidnapping grandmas and, and beating on, um, you know, women and children and, and all that stuff um, and, you know, threatening to kill you know, people uh, indiscriminately for the purposes of you know, trying to get leverage. It's it's always the civilians, right, that suffer the most in in war on both sides. Yeah, this is kind of horrific in a different way. I mean, Ukraine obviously, uh, you know, the, the first target you know for the Russians were military targets, and then they went to a war of terror themselves by using essentially dumb weapons. You know, they're not targeting just blow up cities like Mariupol doesn't exist, right? It's gone for intents and purposes, right? To just destroy civilian populations, and you know, in the case of Israel. Uh, you know, it's it's not a conventional invasion. It isn't like you have a line of tanks or, you know, a full blown, um, you know, military, you know, air combined air uh, land forces. You know, moving in, take a territory, move in. This is you know, straight up terror. You blow stuff up. You know, grab what you want, and then and you try to figure out what their end game really is. Right. Russian end game is easily it's to take over a country. Right. You know, Hamas's end game is to cause enormous terror, but. It's not just that. You know, what do they want more of, or whatever it is? And you know, if if uh, Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon is a participant or decide to want to participate, you know, it's going to continue to destabilization of the region, and the other Arab nations uh, have to kind of figure out you know, how to navigate through this. Because mm-hmm. think it's going to bring forward the Saudis. The Israelis and the Saudis were really moving forward on, on normalization. Mm-hmm. This happens and. You know, if the expectation is that, you know, the Israelis want to take it on the chin with all this death and destruction and says, all right, fine. Well, the answer is obviously no. But then it puts other armed countries in kind of this diplomatic position with not just these terror groups, but, you know, countries like Lebanon and Iran, which are not, especially Iran is a problem country for the U.S. It funds terror organizations. Um, you know, how they how they manage that. Um, and, you know, you can go into all conspiracy theories where they're, you know, we can sit here for an hour talking about them, but you know, this is kind of real geopolitics. This is real geopolitics now, right? You got a hot war uh, in Europe. You got essentially a hot war again in the Middle East. Uh, you got an economic cold war with the U.S. basically EU of China, uh, and Russia is basically not a cold war anymore in economics. It's just downright like eating on them. And then, um, you know, then you also have. Uh, um, you know, civil wars all over the place. In Africa, Myanmar is still in the midst of the civil war where uh, the Hunter military bombed a refugee site on the border of Thailand. They just blew up a refugee site. I mean, you know, this is a Myanmar. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. Of course, they said, you know, you got people like the Philippines, you know, relatively small country, no big Navy, just provoking the Chinese <laughs> Navy. You know, inside their own territorial waters as they continue to dispute. And um, yeah, and of course, in here we don't have a functioning House of Representatives down in Congress. So, oh, yeah, there's that, there's that too, right? <laughs> that too. So, you know, and it's going to change. I hate to say this, and I don't really want this to happen. It's going to change the face of our nation to yeah. operate because we're, you know, loaning, essentially, you know, giving people weapons of credit 
um, and drains our own weapon supply, which means weapon manufacturing has to go up. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, it's on credit. So like the Ukrainians are basically on credit. And whether they pay us back, it's a whole other conversation. We know we have money, but again, it's going to be a credit situation, right? We're going to we're going to sell you weapons on credit, and then pay us later. Israelis are pretty good in paying their bills, so I'm not too concerned about that. But yeah, I mean, you know, the U.S. taxpayers are going to have to, unfortunately, and I really don't, I hate saying this, but we really need to, uh, you know, beef up our supply of weapons because we're give, we're basically selling them on credit. Um, and then we have to change our uh, approach of mobilization and. Uh, and you know, we got the geopolitical components um, on, on diplomacy and economics on top of that, too. So President Biden is a very you know, tough position in to try to manage all that delicately. Um, and, you know, and it's hurting us domestically. I mean, I saw it in the Globe because I'm a Brandeis alumni. I don't know these professors, but, I mean, you know, you know the two kids, his, his son and his wife were, were killed in a hill gunfire. So I don't know if I saw the global article, but I mean, they saved the 10 year old son, but even then he was shot through the abdomen. Yeah. Um, you know, the real people at home, they're really affected by yeah. pain, but also, you know, definitely, most definitely Israel. And there's a very, oh, yeah. nice, very nice lung, you know, it's, it's, it's really disheartening. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen, we've seen rallies of uh, support, you know, for Israel on uh, the common over the weekend. Um, and Cambridge as well, um, so it's, it definitely has has a has a connection to to this area in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Congress needs to get their act together because they're going to have to put others. You know, of course, we have a shutdown government opportunity in about what thirty odd days are here. They're running out. Of oh time. yeah, it's November seventeenth. I think is the new deadline. Yeah, so we got like six weeks to know the government shutdown, and then uh, you know, interim though, you know, we got to get some temporary. Spending package together, you know, not just a military, but also humanitarian aid. Right, it's not just about guns and bullets, but it's about blankets and and um, antibiotics and and vaccines and whatnot uh, to other countries. So, yeah. well, I know Israel is a wealthy nation, but you know, still need to get them medicine and temporary supplies, um, and uh, you know, and then we have to secure the water around there too, because obviously we have. Unfortunately, a vested interest in moving of fossil fuels and oil. Um, and then you got to decide about whether new embargoes are going to go in place and hyper enforce them on, on places that, uh, you know, we, if we can confirm, uh, you know, who's supporting Hamas. I mean, it's a foreign government. And right. Let's figure what you're going to do next there. And then, you know, you just, your citizens are still out in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you got to come home. And, you can't fly easily because you got the Russian-Ukraine war. So you kind of, you know, have very specific routes you can get out in. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I know that people have this really division of politics here, but, you know, people also got to be understanding that this job ain't easy. Right, right. Now we have the migrant crisis still right here in Massachusetts. I think there was a team from the Department of Homeland Security this week uh, in, in Massachusetts. Yeah, uh, you know, we've actually had quite a few federal officials come in the past week, right? CDC came in, you know, some people from, you know, uh, Homeland Security slash Health and Human came in. You know, so it, it's good at trying to uh, pay some attention to what's going on. Uh, as I say, say it again, I've said this uh, with you multiple times now, this is a humanitarian crisis that's being treated like a security issue. Mm. The U.S. government's, quite frankly, 
asinine approach where you get temporary visas and just let you loosen the planet, so to speak, let you loosen the United States or an actual plan, you know, what, what, what's going on here. Um, they, they, it's just this, this, this connection of uh, the federal government to connect the dots that you can't just give millions of people a temporary visa. Um, you know, even they're legally allowed to because of the law or whatever reason, say, okay, well, good luck to you. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. It's not fair. It's not fair to anybody doing it that way. No, no. And, and the people who are left in that position are just going to have to wing it. And it's it, it's very unfair. Um, and, and the consequences are paid by, uh, you know, communities who want to be helpful, but, you know, under-resourced because we didn't know what was coming. Right. Yeah, I think the governor is asking for $250 million uh, initially to, to deal with this. Yeah, we're going to get a lot more than $250 million. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not just us. I mean, you know, states all through the country are facing this, uh, mm-hmm. this humanitarian crisis. And uh, we are still the wealthiest, most powerful nation on the planet. I don't care what anybody says. Um, and, you know, we should be able to be as a collective figuring this out. Mm. I wonder what Canada does, because they have quite a few um, uh, immigrants coming to Canada as well. Yeah, the Canadian immigration is kind of fascinating because people will travel through Mexico, through the United States, straight to the Canadian border. And yeah. they actually go through the same process we have regarding a refugee situation. The Canadian citizenship process is actually less onerous than mm-hmm. the U.S. regarding just not refugee and, um, you know, uh, requests for entry. Um, actually, most countries aren't as rigorous as us. There's only, I can only think very narrow set of countries that are worse than the U.S. Yeah. Well, even the U.S. wasn't that rigorous not too long ago. No, when my parents came in the 60s, it yeah. um, was not that rigorous. Right. Um, you know, they were required citizenship, you know, well below today's between five and 10 years. You can do between one and three. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of us having sponsors, relative sponsors, you know, win, you know, there's accountability, but, you know, it isn't like you're subject to like a social media background check, right? Right, right. It was very different. And, uh, and the idea that undocumented illegals, what do you want to call them, you know, these undocumented folks, you know, a brand new idea. I mean, this has been going on forever in the United States. It's not novel. Uh, and, you know, people like this is novel that people come from uh, countries that have been devastated. That's not novel either. Does everyone remember the potato famine? Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, that was a humanitarian crisis. And, you know, the Irish wasn't loved when they show up here. But, I mean, they did get here, whether they came, you know, legally or undocumented. I mean, they came here. And, you know, same thing you know, during times of war, World War I, World War II, you know, all kinds of controversies, especially World War II. Um, and then, you know, even on the southern border, I mean, you know, the Mexican, um, South Americans, I mean, you know, it was a common trade route between California mm-hmm. and America Southwest and Texas. What we know is now is America Southwest and Texas. Mm-hmm. And they were here first. I mean, a lot of folks that lived down there were there. When the U.S. got out of that territory, the U.S. didn't throw them out. They just kind of like, well, you're here anyway. Right. You know. Right. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. Look at some, some of the old maps. It's fascinating to look at from the early 1800s. And you see, you, you can see where, where Mexico came and where it is now. Yeah. they were. In, it was inhabited by, you know, then by you know, descendants of the Spanish and you know, native folks that lived there. And remember, Texas was a country for 10 years. People forget right. The Republic of Texas. Yes. Yeah. And then we cut up Texas to make it fit the needs of the United States. 
a whole bunch of provisions. And then, you know, a lot of folks that lived there weren't all so-called Americans. They were Texans. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, people tend to forget that humanitarian crisis is not new. And then, you know, we have taken territory from folks over the course of 200 years who are uh, native population, but we treat them like foreigners for some reason, like they're invaders, even though they probably lived there long before, you know, it was a U.S. state, right. um, you know, after a war. It, it's just a strange mentality people have that you think who you, what you have today has always been. That, that is complete fiction. You know, what you have today is only a blink of time, you know, in the larger picture. So, but I mean, again, also times are different, right? I mean, you know, you had uh, labor, you know, different kind of labor shortages. You didn't have work visas. People just right. got jobs. It wasn't like you need permission from the government to work. They just hand you a social security number and off you go. Now you get permission to work. Uh, and it's, you know, this this kind of bureaucracy, you know, really appeared after 9-11. Ah, uh, good point, yeah. 9-11 changed everything on immigration. Suddenly, everybody was dangerous. And, you know, we had to close our borders. And if you weren't, you didn't have the right complexion, you were considered the enemy. Yes. You know, and let's call it what it is. I mean, you know, no one talks about, you know, undocumented Irish, you know, in Boston. But they talk about Mexicans that they, you know, to how comes home and how evil they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I still really truly believe that, you know, to talk about um, undocumented is a bit of racism fault. Well, yes, yeah. I mean there were Japanese internment camps in this country during World War II. So yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and you know, we'll get the details of this one. But I mean, you know, I found out, you know, there are definitely undocumented Albanians here. I found that out this week. Uh, much to uh, I should be surprised, but you know, it just you know, just because the people that blend in, you know, doesn't mean that you know the you, you're gonna you're not gonna call them all one thing or another. Don't pick and choose because of the color of skin, right? And, right. You must forget this. This is Massachusetts. The highest number of undocumented come from Canada. Oh, interesting. It's logical. The Canadian dollar is weaker than the U.S. dollar. Sure. So anything you collect on cash under the table, you bring it back to Canada. I mean, you have twenty five percent higher value money. Yeah, and it's and it's close. And it's close. You know, a lot of French Canadians, you know, were not uncommon to come here to work the mills in Western Massachusetts. I mean, furniture was a lot of it was made by French Canadian labor. Hmm. How many more were legally were you know legally here working papers? Who the hell knows, right? No right, knows. right, right. But this this is this is kind of the the lost conversation. Undocumented folks under any particular persuasion, and that that's something that's not talked about. Undocumented folks can look like anyone. It's true, um, and yet they're resuming the wall. Well, hey, I mean. Yeah, the media doesn't help us, obviously, because they, you know, they tend to pick and choose the crisis centers. Yeah. Uh, and even though there are articles about, you know, non-South American, or Central American undocumented, you can find them, you know, about European undocumented, Canadian undocumented. I'm, I'm sorry, but it doesn't create great news. No, it's true. Yeah, it, it's, it doesn't make for, you know, dramatic video and flashy headlines. No, it doesn't help the talking heads on cable TV. Right. It makes money on you know advertising, which is fine, but incites you know people so they can increase viewership. And um, and uh, you know we we have a bad habit of, of beating on people that can't defend themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. not documented. This you know, happened to women. This happened to uh, people with disabilities. This has happened to people of, of sexual orientation. I mean, 
uh, it's always the easy target to pick someone that's different. Take it from a guy who's who knows what it's like to be different. Uh, it's always easy to pick on one that's different, at least likely defend, at least likely able to defend themselves. And the majority yeah. feels like their power. You know, uh, uh, I always was brought up, you know, an idea that your position of authority, you know, uh, you have higher responsibility not to abuse that authority. But you look at behavior people con- uh, in Congress and, you know, local politicians, even around the country and not just the U.S., but around the world, mm-hmm. use their, you know, uh, soapbox, you know, to demonize folks or uh, incite crowds and riots for their personal political gain. And of course, then you have straight up corruption, right? George Santos, again, you know, he stole credit cards from donors. You got that uh, senator, the senior senator was this Mendez from, from what's his name? From, I can't remember his name now, from New Jersey who had gold bars. I mean, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, come on, people. I was reading something recently about um, why do people seem so angry right now? And, you know, there were... Uh, a list of things, but the number one thing was money. You know, people feel like they don't have enough money or that there's just a wide disparity in the wealth gap in this country, and that's creating animosity and and generating anger. I agree with that. I mean, the wealth gap has statistics. All statistics are so it's great. widened. Reaganomics does not work. Trickle-down economics doesn't work. I know nobody likes to pay taxes. People should pay their fair share of taxes, but it's 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 really bizarre. Like I talked about before about the 62F issue last week. Yeah. You know, we made equal benefits if if it ever happens and everyone gets equal share as opposed to proportional pay to taxes. And I get again emails from constituents like, oh, you can't change this. I look, I was like, you actually benefit from this equity uh component because I look at your home address. I can I can find and figure out, you know, <laughs> your general income status based on where you live. I mean right. I do live here, people. I do have a general clue. Not like I know exactly what everyone makes, but I have a general idea, right, based on in your home. Um, yeah. And it's like, you know, why are you defending rich people, right? It's it's like you will receive a benefit, but now you're lobbying me against your own best interest because somebody told you, you know, that you have to be anti-taxes. Right. Like, Supposedly looking for your best interest, right? It's, it's, it's like the current tax package. You know, it's designed, you know, mass majority is designed around working people in Quincy helps the vast majority of people uh, out there. Um, and of course, there's some provisions that, you know, will also you know, help out some industries such as dairy, right? Which is a big part of our economy still. So again, it's always a balance, you know, delicate balancing act between various things to, to mm-hmm. make uh, palatable for the entire legislation to vote on. Trust me. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a dairy farm. However, my Western Mass friends do. Sure. Yeah. need those votes, folks, right? Um, and, and that's that's the nature of being you know, a diverse state. You have to accom- accommodate everybody in the state the best you can because everyone's representing this part of the country. So, but yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. So yeah, the income divide's real. You know, I uh, we talked a lot about it before. I'm feeling the pinch like you am. I've cut back on my polo sells of water immensely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've cut back on. I have my limited diet makes it hard for me to get snacks. I've cut back on a lot of my own snacks. Mm-hmm. I bought a bag of chips for the first time in like four months. Um, and you know, looking for the sales, right? Right. You kind of get your hand on and If it's like a non-perishable item that I can buy discount, I'm buying a lot of it now. Sure. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. You never know about the sriracha shortage, right? Oh, really? Oh, you never heard about this? No. 
because there's a shortage of uh, chilies, the sriracha company that makes you know the one of the rooster on it, yeah. the green cap. Um, yeah. You know, that point. Great story about you know immigrant story being in a big success. But he, they use uh, they don't use chilies from Southeast Asia. They actually use chilies from South America and Central America, and because of combination of climate change, the tariffs. You know, all this stuff, geopolitics between trade nations and the Trump administration, all this stuff kind of came to a head on like so many different factors. And then there was a huge shortage and you couldn't make any sriracha. So you can find one like you go look on eBay for the sriracha. It's like, you know, ridiculous. I mean, people selling it for like $30 a bottle. I mean, it's, really? It's, oh, yeah. I'm going to have to check my pantry and see if I have any I can sell. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's really nuts. And then, you know, my other friends you know, colleagues in the legislature from, from Southeast Asia, they, you know, they can't get fish sauce because, you know, the high cost of shipping things overseas, mm-hmm. plus, you know, different supply chain issues uh, overseas, you know, has resulted in a shortage of things like fish sauce coming over. Interesting. Yeah, the whole, stop buying fish sauce. The whole trade picture is so delicate. It's almost like a, a house of cards. One goes down and they all go down. It is. And, you know, even things like cocoa and vanilla, you know, coming out of Africa and South America. I mean, you may have noticed that your vanilla prices have gone up and it you know, trickles into ice cream and and baked goods and, and candy and so forth. So, you know, the, you know, there is this global implication for trade and tariffs and the Biden administration hasn't really removed a lot of these tariffs. So, you know, keep some of these prices elevated. Again, tariffs don't help you and me because we pay the tariff, not the foreign country. It's, you know, it's to make prices on foreign goods so high that you're going to buy domestic instead. Things like vanilla is not a domestic product. Right. Yeah. So artificial vanilla is your is your better priced option. Um, But if you want natural vanilla bean or have a product in it, you're going to pay more money because there's a simple example of tariffs, right? You're paying for it, you know, at the store uh, because there's no real competitor locally. Mm hmm. Again, this yeah. is like crazy trade policy. I don't understand at the federal level. It's like you, you, you want to create tariffs against competition of similar products against a domestic company, not on raw goods that you don't have a competitor in. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You, you want to bring those prices down so people will buy them. Well, yes. All you're yeah. doing is hurting. They're just hurting us. I mean, this was the Trump administrator tariffs. I always scratch my head about this when I started reading articles about the impacts of certain sectors. And I'm like, this makes no sense. Again, trade wars are designed to protect domestic businesses against foreign competition by discouraging local folks from buying more expensive foreign product because right. they made it right. more expensive. Yeah, you raise, raise the tariffs on imported vehicles if you want people to buy domestically. Yeah, that's the conversation started about electric vehicles because the Chinese are going to be exporting foreign vehicles at some point, especially electric vehicles, and going to undercut you know, the local manufacturing would be the big three or a Tesla, but even, you know, Volkswagen and Honda, they have massive manufacturing plants in Massachusetts. They're actually made in America. Yep, most of them. Yeah, You don't realize how much, you know, these foreign car manufacturers are made in America because they have processes here. They make it here. So, you know, they'll be impacted as well by, uh, you know, a flood of Chinese lower cost electric vehicles. Yeah. Uh, You know, they're going to be like, okay, where do we fit into the car picture? Because they're, foreign but they make everything here right right. well almost the intellectual property is a lovely source yeah well exactly yeah i guess it's you have to follow the money where does the money flow back to yeah yeah so i mean obviously intellectual property isn't locally sourced but um but yeah i mean you know it's easy for them to you know hire a local steel mill 
than it is to go import from Germany, right? Of course, yeah. So, um, you know, there is you no know, conversation about whether or not you're going to increase foreign tariffs on, on electric vehicles to 25 to 50%, then the country that the tariffing against is going to respond against your own companies in the U.S. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it becomes this kind of like turf war. So, no, that conversation is real, guys. I mean, as as the electric market, the vehicle market shifts around, um, and of course, you know, your electric vehicle car tax at the federal level requires it to be predominantly made in the United States, right? Including the raw raw elements component. Interesting. Um, yeah. You know, so it locks out you know, f- you know basic Chinese vehicles so they could buy using using the federal tax credit. Um, you know, this, this is going to be coming the pipe probably in the next. Well, well, we'll see if they try to do this during the election cycle. How's that sound? Uh, good points. <laughs> good points. Yeah. Um, what is going on with the cannabis industry, Massachusetts techie? <laughs> well, I mean, it's a saturation point. I mean, okay. well, there's been a lot of conversation, you know, and we did some stuff regarding equity to allow smaller business, particularly minority owned women, women business, to enter the cannabis market. Um, you know, the federal government is moving forward and allowing opening lines of credit, which is a big problem because we can't use the banking system. And the banking system by nature is interstate and the federal ba- federal crime on cannabis is interstate. You know, no bank's going to put themselves at risk yeah. uh, for one cannabis shop, um, you know, against a federal, federal crime. So, I mean, if the feds continue moving forward on, you know, opening up lines of credit, the Congress eventually decriminalizes. Uh, cannabis because the majority of the country is moving that direction. So is Canada. Excuse me. So there's this already this movement existing. You know, at what point does you know this reach a certain you know threshold the feds need to respond? Locally, yeah, I mean we you know want more a small minority women on business to participate. Um but again startup cost is very high. You can't get credit, right? That means you have to get cash help from venture capitalists. You have to cobble together your own money and get through the regulatory process and everything else. But like, you know, to me, at some point, every market hits a saturation. It's the walls mm-hmm. of economics, right? Eventually you have sufficient supply and it meets demand. Mm-hmm. There's really no more room for anybody else unless you have a massive price reduction. And the concern a lot of us had was because the uh, few shops, few supply make black market more attractive because they're undercutting, undercutting the legal market. And of course, you've heard of fentanyl in everything, which yes. is which just makes it scary, right? Yes, yes. Then, you know, supply has risen, demand hasn't grown, eventually they equalize, and at some point the existing market has to undercut, which then will undercut the black market, which then eventually over a long time will shrink the size of the black market. Okay. And uh, again, fentanyl, scary. So yeah. And deadly. Deadly. So the question is, how do you manufacture the customers? My argument's always been that it isn't like you're sitting at home teaching kids how to use pot. If you are great, I don't want to tell you how, you know how to how to raise your children, but that's your decision, not mine. Um, but I mean, I just don't see the vast majority of parents, you know, teaching the kids use pot, like giving them like scotch at like age fourteen. Here, learn how to drink this stuff, right? Right. Um, you know, I, I just don't see the, the 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 creation of a market in the same way. Um, and eventually, you know, there'll be an equalization of the market. I think. Mm-hmm. Has reached that point. Now, what's going on at Cannabis Control Commission with Shane O'Brien and, and Deb Goldberg? That's a legal case that's pending. Yes. I'm not even going to comment on this one. It's because well, there is nothing to comment on. It's There's no information out there. Yeah. And, you know, it's a legal proceeding at this point. So, I mean, I don't dare say anything. It's like, 
can't tell you what the facts of anything are until uh, the media reports come out, you know, once they start this process on, on what's reviewed in court. Right. But a whole different internal function of the, of the, of the regulatory agency. Um, yes. But yeah, I mean, to me, a lot of the stuff that we utilize, like sports betting, we talked about this before, it reaches a certain equilibrium. Um, there'll be spikes during certain times of the year. I mean, you know, obviously you guys know I deal with the alcohol industry a lot. Um, there's that there's equilibrium there. Um, and change competition, whether it be the rest shipping or wine or go puff. Um, and then, you know, obviously during certain times of the year, July 4th, you know, graduation season, wedding sure. season. Yep, Super Bowl, whatever. Yep. Yeah. The the industry will have these natural, you know, rise and spikes and um and then you know, but I mean, tourist season, whatnot. So, you know, again, I, I do a lot of regulatory industries. You know, I do understand how the markets work in that area. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But, you know, I, I truly believe, you know, these regula- new regulatory industries were created. You know, equilibrium is going to occur. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, you know, we haven't talked about it in a long time is um, the unemployment uh, program in Massachusetts, Techie. You mean the uh, workers development program? Yes. At the uh, Quincy Center. Yes. Is it working? Oh, okay. It was like was something <laughs> go wrong there that I didn't. I missed it. A new service? No, no, not at all. <laughs> I, I just told you. Like, I don't, you know me. I don't. I don't set you up. If the, I would have told you, <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's a good time to remind people it's there. Yeah, uh, if you receive unemployment benefits, you do have to be engaged in some form of workforce development, whether you're actively in a job or getting workforce training. It has to be accounted for. Uh, Those who have been on unemployment know everybody in COVID season in 2020 knows all about it at this point. Right. Uh, Because, you know, you had almost 20% of the population at various points of unemployment benefits. Um, and there was some waivers regarding the fact it was more difficult to to get accountability on I don't know, going to the office safely to to, yep. uh, to demonstrate you're actually meeting the education slash looking for work requirements. Unemployment's still low in Massachusetts, right? It's still under four percent nationally. Yep. It's under four percent, but there are more. I mean, I'm getting more calls in the office seeking unemployment assistance, mass health assistance. You know, these are not COVID calls uh, from 2020. These are brand new folks, um, and you know, it is getting pinched. And uh, I know that uh, um, uh, Chairman Cutler, Chairman of Workforce and Labor, uh, you know, did a visit down there. I couldn't go. I was tied up in the state. I was talking about C Street um, with the OT running C Street Safety Project, which mm-hmm. should kick off, I hope, sometime in the spring. Okay. Uh, a lot of disturbances coming on C Street, folks, starting in the spring, if, if everything's on schedule. But, um, yeah, the chairman... You know, Cutler went around and uh, you know, to different workforce sites and discussed, you know, the latest versions on uh, education requirements, accountability, and uh, what they can do. And, you know, there's going to be an uptick over time. Yeah. It's it's almost kind of designed that way, right, uh, by the feds. Yeah, and also the state. I mean, the federal government, mm-hmm. you know, require, increased workforce uh, accountability on the unemployment benefits um, as well as SNAP benefits. So, you know, receiving stuff is greater accountability for that. Uh, on the flip side, though, Massachusetts uh, for a very long time, before even I got into government, that's how long mm-hmm. it's been, has required uh, folks to be participating in some kind of education and have to mm-hmm. demonstrate actively seeking a job. And we actually have a very generous time frame for benefits. Uh, we really do. So, you know, I have friends, and you may have friends on employment, whether they talk about it or not. 
you know, we get calls from my friends, like, how do we do compliance? I mean, right. <laughs> brought back to my job. People were like, right. hey, how do I do this to make sure we're okay? I was like, okay. And then, uh, but also be careful with these numbers. Seasonal workers uh, do go on employment. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. And this is the time of year they'll start to apply. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you have seasonal and, and non-seasonal adjustment on employment numbers. Yep. So yep. generally what you see in the news is not, is the um, uh, seasonally adjusted. If you, if you adjust for seasonally, the number goes up, but it's yes. a temp- the temporary spike reflecting the, the seasonality of, of uh, the tourism industry and hospitality industry. So right. yeah. as we get, you know, it's October 11th today in about month's time or less, you know, Tony's plan shop, plan box will close. Um, you know, they go to seasonal unemployment. Right. But places down the Cape, uh, you know, similar, um, even um, school bus drivers, you know, over the summertime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seasonal unemployment. Yeah. So the, the, that's why I have the two numbers. And you got the payroll farm numbers, which is also different because those are, oh, yeah. uh, again, temporary workers doing different agricultural seasons throughout the United States. Yep. Payroll farm numbers is part of that too. We don't deal with it the same way because we don't, we have a farm industry, but we're not Iowa. So our, our seasonality in terms tends to be focused on hospitality less on mm-hmm. Yep, yep. It's uh, yeah, exactly. It's not as big an agricultural state as, as as others. Although I was out in the western part of the state this past weekend, um, and it's just it's remarkable how different it is, uh, just geographically and culturally. Yeah, and I, oh yeah. I mean, you know, one of the benefits of my job is to travel the state every so often, uh, visiting industries or visiting legislators. You know, uh, to uh, see what's going on and now that we're out of COVID-ish sort of I don't know um you know I'll be I'll be looking forward to do more um trips around the state to see my colleagues stuff in my capacity as a chair um you know I hope to go to more conferences um something I really neglected um early on in my chairmanship because I was just up to my neck in insanity and when COVID hit um and I really have neglected the ability to go to educational opportunities I'm hoping maybe I'll get to do that if I can find time inside and decide the schedule that we live in. Um, but, uh, you know, we had appropriated $20 million plus in assistance post floods for uh, the farms in, you know, central Western Mass, particularly yep. besides closing in on New Hampshire, Vermont border, which is basically just flooded out. And agriculture, you know, you get enough water besides killing the plants, you can get mold. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All, all, all kinds of things. Yeah. And it's their livelihood. Yeah, so we provide, provide some direct financial assistance in the last supplement of the budget. Again, it doesn't mean the same thing to us in Quincy, uh, but you know it means a lot to you know to our <clears throat> colleagues in Western Mass. And mm-hmm. organic farming is a big part of our economy in Massachusetts too. I mean, it's not like Iowa, California, or right. You know, but I mean, cranberries are number two in the country. You know, in terms of putting out cranberries, but you know, still apple picking is a big time here. It's a huge apple bumping crop. I, I can't eat apples. Don't food allergy. But I mean, people have told me that, you know, taking kids and seniors, I, mean, I helped sponsor a, um, a van with the Asian American Service Association to take senior citizens out for a day on apple picking. Uh, I'm hearing that people have way too many apples now. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> well, I mean, you can sauce them, you can side it all. I'm sure you could come up with You can put them in pie. <laughs> I know. Uh, so. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been a bumper apple crop, right? So, um, but other things were, you know, obviously, you know, I heard watermelon was really good this year, but I didn't seem like didn't see see that many in the store for some reason. Uh, 
again, I was like, I heard about it, but I was like, I'm not seeing it. Um, you just picked the wrong day to show up at the store. Um, <laughs> they they bought them out before you got there. <laughs> I think that's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's an example of us working with folks in other parts of the country. I mean, other parts of the state, you know, that that needs help. And, uh, you know, the folks with disease, we to support folks in Western Mass. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, we're at the end of the hour, Jackie. Sure. Uh, you can find me at 617-722-2370, 617-722-2370. We are open. You, you know, come visit. You want to take a tour to State House. I strongly encourage people to do so as, as uh, this part of tourist season slows down. Um, you can email me at tackey.chan and mayhouse.gov, tackey.chan and mayhouse.gov. Um, and then uh, you can look at me through my social media at State Representative uh, Tacky Chan, you can see pictures of me from Korea Day, for example, uh, that we had on Friday, um, as well as MALegislature.gov. You can feel free to look up your own bills, find out the chairman, uh, submit testimony to various committees' websites. Um, and of course, you can look at our old archives of not just sessions, but a whole bunch of public hearings we've been having. Uh, I love the fact people say we're not working. Well, go look up our public hearings. That's work, work, folks. Yep. <laughs> it is work. And uh, tackychan.org is our uh, typical page for resources. You need to find a phone number. I direct people there. And of course, you know, uh, X <laughs> at tackychan. Yes, you can tell the pause because I'm still trying to adjust to X at tackychan. Uh, this is the Twitter account. And of course, you know, got a problem called Joe at QA TV of a question. Let's see if we can. <laughs> And, uh, I'll be sure and forward it to Tacky. <laughs> yep. And, uh, you can listen to Joe in the morning, obviously. He has his podcast in the morning for, the, you know, five to eight minutes of uh, condensed news and points that you all need to know about during the day. Appreciate it, Tacky. Have a wonderful week, and we'll check in next week. Have a wonderful week, and I'll see you all soon.